welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Good evening. Everybody good tonight? Good to see everybody smiling again. Uh, the last time I was up here, we uh, started James, the book of James, in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we discussed going through trials and what it is to go through trials and what God, why God wants us to go through trials for his purpose. And understand that he's more interested in our righteousness and our happiness. We also learn about God's wisdom, where we look for it. Sometimes we look every place else but to, with the Lord. Tonight we're going to be in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is kind of a challenging chapter. It talks about favoritism, partiality, and faith without works, which is a challenging part of this chapter. So let's begin. Let's open our books to uh, chapter 2. Begin at verse 1. I'm going to read the first 13 verses to you. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there or you sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The more I read about Scripture and get into Scripture, the problems of today are the same problems they had over 2,000 years ago. It's no different. James here is, is addressing the social problems of the day, the injustice, the discrimination. Um, today we have the same things. Racism, bigotry, prejudice. Racism seems to take the place of partiality. We don't use that word too much anymore. At least I don't. Right? Racism 
takes its own meaning in today's world. If I say something that disagrees with you, your thought, or the way you think, or philosophy, right away I'm a racist. And that's not really the definition. Well, that's not how I learned it anyway. Right? Racism really is having cultural groups, thinking that cultural groups are better. Right? It, we always think that we are better. It's, it's a human nature in us to think that we are better. But just like as we were kids when we talked about, well, my mother's better than your mother, and my father's better than your father, it's a childish attitude to have. The Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., we celebrated his birthday not too long ago. He addressed racism. He did so by using scripture, too, which a lot of people in his generation forgot. That's why he was so successful. But James is, is coming from a different angle. See, as good as Martin Luther King was in doing so, he was trying to change the laws of the land, people's thinking. But James comes from a different angle. Different angle where we could see, if you go back to verse 1, it says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ to Lord glory with partiality. First, who is James talking to? And it tells you right there, my brethren, meaning believers. He was speaking to believers at the time. Right? And his, his attempt was to talk to the church about partiality, racism, discrimination. And he's trying to tell us, even today, that that has no place in the church. No place whatsoever. He's not addressing the cultural problems of today as far as in the community, but he's addressing the problems in the church. And you, if you remember from the last time we spoke, the church split up, it scattered because of the persecution in, Rome, in Jerusalem by the Romans. So he's trying to talk to us and remind us that partiality is not a place in the body of Christ. And there's two big reasons why it shouldn't be in the body of Christ. One of them, one reason is we should be like God. If we look at Romans 2.11, it says, for there is no partiality with God. Looking at Ephesians 6.9, it says, and you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. And Colossians 3.25, But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. If you look at those three scriptures, it tells you that that's the heart of God. And the heart of God should be the heart of believers. But the number two reason, the second reason that's most important that there should be no partiality in the church, is that we, that we all come to the, Christ, to the cross of Christ. All, all have been abolished at the cross. There should be no distinction, no way of thinking that this person is better than me. All that has been abolished at the cross. At the, at the cross. And if we look at Galatians 23, 27 to 29, it says, For as many of you as, as we were baptizing to Christ have been put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, to us, that could be Jew or Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. In today's society, it could be rich or poor. There is neither male nor female. 
neither the male or female. That's something, because back in that day, females weren't thought of too much. They didn't even have the right to testify or, or have a voice of opinion, so that's a big deal. Even, he even uh, tells us that there's neither male nor female, female for, all, for you all are one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that's, that's interesting, right? That's something. We are all equal in the eyes of Christ. Male, female, white, black, green, blue, whatever it is, we all stand shoulder to shoulder in, in, at the cross of Christ. And that's an important thing to think of. We're all sinners and we're all saved by grace and we're all the same. And that's what James is trying to talk about. In Romans 3, 24, it says, Even the righteous of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we all are the same at the cross. There's no difference. You know, we all come to Christ. We all, we all come and be in front of him, and there's no difference that we should have, whether it's our sex, our nationality. There's no, that's the shit distinction is different. We all stand level at the cross. And that's an important thing to think of. And if you don't understand that, then you really don't understand the gospel. Because that's really what the gospel is all about. So in verse 2 and 3, he talks about a rich man, one rich man, and, and, and a poor man coming into the church. And he's telling us that one is wealthy and one is poor. And, he, and we make a distinction. And it says in verse 5, it says in verse 4, Have you not shown partiality among yourselves? become judges with evil thoughts. And James is telling us that we judge people by their outward appearance, that we get their attention because of the way they look. A lot of churches do that. There's some churches that cater to people because either they're rich or they, they give them the impression that they can help the church, right? And it, they distinguish themselves from somebody that is poor and not so wealthy. And there are churches out there that do that. And James is trying to tell us that we shouldn't make that kind of distinction, that outward appearance that gets our attention. Because the Lord doesn't care what we look like. You know, we can wear the most dirtiest clothes or we can dress up really fine clothes. He doesn't care what we look like. It's what's in our heart. That's what he really is caring about. Let me... Uh, Turn to 1 Samuel 16.7. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. The Lord does not see as a man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at his heart. That was a rebuke to Samuel when he went to look for David, and he saw their brothers, and the brothers were strong, and they probably were good-looking, and Samuel thought of, surely that's who God wants to be king. And God said, nope, nope, not him. See that boy out in the field? He said, that's who's going to be the next king. 
So a lot of times we do that as Christians. Right? We look at someone's appearance and we, and we become very judgmental. James tells you that we shouldn't be doing that. That's not the way that we should be looking at people. We should be looking at people like God looks at people. Uh, when I went down to Trenton, when I was just I was just saved for a little while, and I came to this church when it opened up, came here, and I went down there, and I stood there at the table as we were giving out the clothes, and and I'm looking across and say I'm saying to myself, God, why am I here? And why am I here with these people? You know? And his little voice in back of me says, because I love these people, and I want you to tell them about me. I was convicted because I felt that way. But that's the way we should look at all people, because God loves everyone the same way. And that's what he wants us to, to tell the word to, especially to the ones that don't know them. That don't know them. See, when we start to look at people, people with an earthly standard, we, we forget what we are as Christians, what, how the way we should look at them. You know, we should look at them through the Bible and not through the earthly standards that, that earthly people that the world tells us the way they look at. You know, poor people aren't a problem. As he goes on in verse 5, he says, Listen, my brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not they blaspheme their noble name by which you are called? If we start singling out the, the poor man and distinguishing him from other people, then we have committed sin. We shouldn't be doing that. You know, the poor man isn't the problem. The poor man is probably more relatable to come to salvation than the rich man is because the rich man, he is full of ego and pride and it keeps him from salvation. The only thing that can keep a poor man from salvation is his bitterness because of his situation, that he doesn't trust God with his situation. And rich people feel entitled. I'm not saying that all rich people are bad. There were a lot of rich people in the Bible. Abraham was rich. Job was rich, Solomon. So there was a lot of people in the Bible that were rich. Being rich is not a problem. You know, the way we look at people is the problem. And the way we look at uh, poor people and rich people is, is the problem. When we start to distinguish them and criticize them and cast judgment upon them. Moving on to verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin, uh, convicted by the law as a transgressor. So what's a transgressor? A transgressor is anyone that knows the law and still violates it anyway. Jesus says that you love the Lord thy God with all your heart. And he makes it equivalent to, the, to this verse where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you do well. Verse 10 tells us, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of them all. Now you might have that underlined in your Bible, but 
has, verse 10 has to be explained because a lot of people misunderstand that statement. If you fail in one law, you're guilty of, of them all. See, as, as Christians, sometimes we, we understand the law like knocking down bowling pins. Everybody knows I like to bowl, right? If we put the Ten Commandments on the bowling pins, all ten pins, and we knock down three and say, hey, we knocked down three, but still seven are still standing. That's not the way it works. You know? The law is like a pane of glass. If you crack the glass, you have to replace the whole glass. And that's the way the law works. You commit one sin, you commit, you commit all the sins. And another misnomer, a lot of people say that, if you talk to people, well, sin is sin is sin is sin. Well, I understand what they mean, but they're saying it wrong. All sin is not the same. If you steal a candy bar, it's not the same as committing adultery. If you commit adultery, it's not the same as committing murder. But all sin makes you a lawbreaker. And that's what he's talking about. So you got to understand that interpretation. Not every sin is the same, but all sin makes you a lawbreaker. Verse 11. For he said, do not commit adultery. He also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and do so as though you will be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty is another word saying the law of freedom. See, when, before we came to Christ, we were slaves to sin. We weren't free to choose. The law of liberty is another way of saying the law of freedom, that we are free to choose to sin or free to to choose to go the other way. See, the Lord gave us a choice. And a lot of Christians, they mistake the fact that once you become a Christian, you got no sin. You won't sin again. Well, that's not the case. You got the freedom to choose. You can choose to go with the Lord, or you can choose to go your own, own way. See, before we came to the Lord, we had no choice. We were, we were slaves to sin. We ended up sinning all the time because we were slaves to it. But now, when you come to Christ, you are free from that, and you are free to choose. See, what James was doing, he was talking to the Jews at the time. And the Jews followed the law of Moses, right? But the law of Moses didn't help them change, right? It's like getting on a scale and see how much you weigh, but that scale doesn't tell you how to lose that weight, right? So that's why the law of freedom... Is, was told by James, and that we, as Christians, should act that way. Verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So from the, let me just say that that's not a recipe for salvation, right? Our mercy, the grace of God, it came upon us already when we came to the cross, right? The mercy he's talking about here is that when we show others mercy, we will get mercy. Right? And he's tell, talking to believers. But he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about what we reap, we will sow. You know, if we show mercy to others, you know, God will see that. But that's not saying that mercy gives you salvation. 
That's saying that we earn salvation. We don't earn salvation. We get salvation by the grace of God. And, and James is talking about that as we see in Matthew 7. Matthew 7 says, Judge not that you, not, you be not judged, for what judgment you judge will be, ju- will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So whatever you, you do to people, whatever judgment you use on people, it will return back to you. That's where it's saying you, you reap what you sow. It's, it's really, it's not, again, it's not a message of how you get salvation. It's a biblical principle. What you reap, you sow. How you treat other people, you will get back in return in this life. And that was James warning us as Christians that that's how God will look at it. So moving on to the next section in chapter 2, which is kind of a tough section in chapter 2. A lot of people have trouble with it. I'm going to read it beginning at verse 14. And it's starting at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which he needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you know, want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed of God, and he was accounted to him for his righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger? and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Like I said in the beginning, a lot of people had that problem with this passage because it's kind of tough to, to, to handle, tough to understand. You know, one, of, one of the people that had a problem was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a priest who started the Protestant Reformation because he knew, saw that the Catholic Church was big on works. They were hyper-sensitive hyper on works, that works will give you salvation. And Martin Luther knew that that wasn't biblically right. That what he, what he saw with the church, selling prayers, selling pieces of wood, wasn't biblically right. So because he was so hypersensitive about that, he was hypersensitive about this passage what James was talking about because he wasn't a big fan of James when he talked about this. So why is this verse so problematic? So I want you to just look at verse 17 
Verse 17 says, Thus also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. Now that by itself, you, know, you could have a problem with, but, the, but the, another verse, verse 24, it says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. Now if you just take those two voice, verses by itself, I think you would have a problem with that. But you see what I just said? I took two verses and that's what people do with the Bible. They take two verses or they, they pluck things out of the Bible, right? And they come up and they make, it, they make a big deal out of it without reading the whole Bible. You know, so that's why when you read the Bible, you've got to read the whole context of the Bible and not pluck out uh, these two, one or two verses and, and, and get a little uptight about it. So... Let's go, let's go back to 14 and read 14, what James is trying to say. So it says, What does it profit, my brethren, talking to Christians again, believers, if someone says his, he has faith with his mouth, he speaks that he has faith, but does not have works, right? that doesn't do anything with his life as a Christian. Can faith save him? So just, can, just talking about having faith cannot just save you. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you not give them any things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So if you know that brothers and sisters have something wrong, you know, they are destitute and you don't feel like you do anything about it, what kind of faith is that? What does that what does that profit? So he says in verse 17, does also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, what is James trying to say? We do is what the result is what we believe. Faith results in action. Just in faith alone is not enough. Right? In verse 22, James says, faith is active. Faith should be active. If you just confess that you believe in God and, and, and go to church on Sunday, but you don't do anything with that faith, then you don't bear any fruit. You know, James is talking to the casual churchgoer that says he believes, but doesn't produce any fruit. You know, which there's a term that comes up that that's called easy believism. Easy believism is, is if you Google it, you know, you'll get all kinds of definitions from it. But in the worldly view, is just that easy believism is that something exists. You just believe in it. It just exists. If we look at, at John 3.16, if we could put that up, Right? It says, for God, you know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So all you got to do is believe in God and that's it. No? Not so. No, you want to believe in something. That's not the biblical term, just to, just to believe. The biblical term the principle behind that is that if you really receive God into your heart, that you really take him in, that you know that he's your Lord and Savior, Savior that, you, 
that you believe in him and that you want to follow him. That's what John 3.16 is all about. That's what believing is all about. Uh, how many times have you tried to witness to people and say, you know, oh, yeah, 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 I believe in, I believe in Jesus, just to quiet you down. Yeah, I believe, I believe. You know, that's that easy believism that James is talking about. You know, it's, you know, even James said in there, you know, you believe in Jesus, that's good. But even the demons believe in Jesus. You know, I think a better word than using believe is to receive. Like we receive communion, if we receive Jesus into our heart, that's a real belief that we really, you know, we, re we really believe in him. And that we want, really want to follow him. Not just saying the words that come out of our mouth. You know, that's true believing. That's the biblical believing. And I think that's what James is talking about here. And let me just put up a statement from A.W. Tozer. He was a, a pastor and an author of Christian church. This was like over 60 years ago he put this up. Faith now means no more than passive moral acquiescence in the word of God and the cross of Jesus. To exercise faith, you have only to rest on one knee and nod our heads in agreement with instructions of a personal worker intent upon saving our soul. So even Tozer was thinking about talking about easy believing, believism, even though he didn't say that. But, you know, he's talking about people just nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah, I believe. I believe. That passive, passive believing, you know, that we hear so much about. You know, and you've got to be your, your tongue in cheek when you hear people do that. There's a lot of Christians that do that. I know I, know, I have friends that call themselves Christians. Right? that say, yeah, I believe in God, but there's no fruit behind what they believe. So James is saying, he gives examples, in, starting at verse 20, and he says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? He talks about Abraham sacrifice and uh, Isaac. And that's, a, uh, that's another point. How strong is our faith? Think about that. He's willing to sacrifice his son. You know, what are we willing to sacrifice? Uh, in my home group I, that I have, is that I ask the question, uh, what would you do? You know, we live in such a bubble in this country. What would you do if someone took you on your knees and said they're going to cut your head off if you say you believe in Jesus? What would you do? What would you do? Where, is your faith that strong enough that you would allow him to do that? Isaac's faith was so strong that he's willing to kill his son. Is your faith at that level? Interesting, something to think about. Okay. And then he goes on, he said, Likewise, was, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out in another way? And he says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without works is dead also. And like I said, James is trying to say, we are proven by our good works, not justified by our works. Justified is another word of acknowledgement, right? But we are proven by our good works and not justified by our works. It's like, like prayer, you know? A lot of people say, oh yeah, I pray. 
Oh, I pray all the time. You know, if you want to get uh, three people at a meeting, just call a prayer meeting. Uh -huh. I mean, it's true, right? How many people would show up? You know, do they demonstrate their power in prayer? Do they have that power? Do they believe so much? If you believe so much in prayer, then you would come and do it, right? You would do it, right? It's the same thing with faith, right? You act on it. If you have that strong faith, you would act on it, right? And you would do it. You know, how many times have you heard people say, well, yeah, I did everything I could, so I guess all I can do is pray. All you can do? All you can do? That's supposed to be the greatest thing you can do, right? But people have this passive attitude about even about prayer, you know? See, James is talking a specific kind of Christian, a specific attitude, right? An attitude that, you know, they have, they have belief, but it's very weak. They, have, they don't have the faith that produces any fruit. You know, he's a casual believer that maybe just goes to church on Sunday and Christmas. You know, that's who James is talking about here. You know, genuine faith transforms your life. Faith proven by our good works. If I could put up another quote by A.W. Tozer, right? It says, the faith of the Apostle Paul was a revolutionizing thing. It upset the whole life of the individual and transformed him into another person altogether. It laid hold of his life and brought it under obedience to Christ. It said goodbye to its friends. It had a finality about it. It turned earth into a desert and drew heaven within view. It realigned all life's actions and brought them into accord with the will of God. It made him little and God big, and Christ unspeakably dear. All this and more happened to a man when he received the faith that justifies. If you come to Christ and nothing changes in your life, then you have to examine yourself. You know? When you come to Christ, your life changes. That, that old self is left behind. You know? I can't imagine myself back when I was in the 80s. You know? I was in the nightclubs. I was out there. I was gambling. I can't, you know, I can't, that's another person. You know? Pastor Joe talked about himself. I mean, that was another person years ago before he came to the Lord. You know? Coming to the cross changes your life. If it doesn't, if nothing changes in your life and you continue to your same habits, your same way of speech, then you need to examine yourself, as Paul says. And come to, coming to God is, is, is a genuine change in your life, a general transformation. You know, and that faith is proven by your good works. So with all that said, let me just put out a little, little caution out there because I know a lot of people at different levels of their faith, you know, and I'm going to talk about what the Bible calls faint-hearted people. Faint-hearted people are people that are overly concerned about their salvation, that they don't measure up, that they think they're not worthy. I was that when I, was, when I first 
think I, I was worried that I wasn't good enough, that whatever I did wasn't, wasn't good enough. You know? you know, they overthink their life not bearing fruit, you know, and they obsess with the fact that they're not good enough and they don't follow Christ. Not that they don't, they don't know Christ, not that they don't want to be with Christ, right? Is that they, they think they don't do enough. Let me just say, James is not talking about you here. That's not, that's not, you know, I just tell you, take what you can out of this. But James is not talking about you. He's talking about the casual believer. But the problem with faint-hearted people is that Satan sees that. And he can condemn them by doing it. You know, saying you're no good. You know, saying that you're not good enough. You know, just, just making you feel like you, that you shouldn't be a, a Christian. So with, with faint-hearted pe- people, I just, I just want you to know that, you know, God speaks to you in different ways, right? The Word of God speaks to everyone in different people, you know, depending on where your level is. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, with Paul wrote, Now we, you brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See, people are at different levels in their Christian walk, and you should admonish the ones that are are not walking in Christ, but you should comfort the faint-hearted, you know, and you should uphold the weak and be patient with everybody. And that's what Paul was talking about. Paul was writing to the churches, right? The churches were at different level of faith, right? When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he wrote, he wrote a letter of warning. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote a letter of correction, right? When he wrote to the Thessalonians, he wrote encouragement. He didn't, he didn't uh, write about warning or correction. So we all get at different levels in our, in our walk with the Lord. So, if you're convicted by what I talked about, that you don't think your faith is, is producing any fruit, then pray about it. Think about it. Examine yourself. You know, there was this world thinks they can change so many things. Talk about racism, discrimination, you know, we're always going to have racism and discrimination. But it'll, it'll, it'll be solved only when the king of kings will come back. And that's when we'll, we'll have no racism, we'll have peace. But until then, we just have to pray. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you. You made us one under Jesus Christ, the Lord, that there is no distinctions, that there is no place for worldly ideas, and that we are the children of God, dear Lord, and that we all receive the same grace that you have given us so freely upon us. Lord, the Bible is the great equalizer, dear Lord, and that we all stand shoulder to shoulder in front of you. We can show the world through Jesus that we can go a different different way. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for your wisdom of the word. We pray that we have all of us will have faith in action. We just thank you for speaking to our hearts and continue to bless us in your ministry of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.